Rickard Wixell. It's sad to see that we're not doing more for people living with chronic pain. Uh, and I wonder sometimes if we've kind of given up. Patients used to say what they wanted to do in life, and they used to say that this is my goal, and they used to try to get to that goal, and they used to fail again and again and again, and then they stopped trying because it just hurts to fail. And sometimes I wonder if the society has gotten to that point too. We're not even trying to solve the problem anymore. Pain is some serious business. It ain't everyone who knows what to do about it. Now I hear there's a podcast just about this. It doesn't talk of pain alone, but other interesting things distracting the mind from it. So I suggest you tune in to Outsmart the Pain and listen to what Karsten has to say about it. Get ahead. Get it done. Listen to the podcast and maybe change your life or someone else's. Today I have the opportunity to talk to psychologist Richard or Richard uh, Richard Vixell. Very warmly welcome, Richard. Thank you, Kasten. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's say a very practical example. If a doctor meets a patient who has a lot of pain, which made them not being able to move, which increased their weight, um, and when you talk to them. They say, I get overweight because I don't move. And I can't move because I am in pain. So first I need to get rid of the pain and then I will start moving. Mm-hmm. Then you start, oh, okay, try this pill then and see if you're better. And then you can start exercising. And yes. then you will see the patient after three months and nothing happened. Yes, uh, this is the problem, the dilemma. So we've talked about the pain dilemma or the patient's dilemma which starts with that vicious cycle you end up in that kind of behavior pattern it's like a catch-22 you need to lose weight maybe but like you need to be very active in order to do that and you can't be active because of your pain so it's a type of behavior that we can call avoidance you avoid engaging in physical activity because that increases the pain the problem is it works It works short term. And this is super important to understand. When we talked about it's an enigma why the patient is not doing this and that, or it's an enigma why the patient is doing this. There's no enigma here. It's just a lack of understanding because we haven't understood the context because we haven't listened to the narrative. So if we understand, we can then have a meaningful conversation about this. And we can say, it seems like you are stuck in this kind of vicious cycle. And I get it. I understand. And the problem here is that it works. It works short term. And by working, you say that they get less pain if they don't move. So that's why it works for them. Yes, exactly. So in in the decision process of engaging in physical activity or not, if my agenda is I want to keep my pain as low as possible, should I then go out running or should I not? if my objective is to keep pain as low as possible. So going back to the, to the threat value, if I believe that my pain is, is bad for me, if that's threatening, then of course I try to avoid it or I try to reduce it or I try to keep it as low as possible. And that objective or mindset 
pushes me in the direction I'm not going out running. So we can look at that and say, all right, so you have this strategy, uh, like you've tried so many things. You've tried medication, surgery, you've tried tense, you've tried um, all these different, you've tried cognitive behavior therapy, you've tried to push through, you've tried, you know, physical exercises, you've da 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 and you've also tried to keep pain as low as possible by avoiding risk situations. And where did that take you? For how long have you done these, these things? How well did it work? And what we do is we actually put these on the whiteboard and, and we talk through them. And then we look at the consequences, short-term and long-term. And most of these work fairly well short-term. You take some sort of medication and it feels better a little bit. And then four hours later, it's gone. And then you have to take another pill. And, and over time, the effect of that pill is not going to be as good anymore. So it works short term, but not long term. And that's the case with most of these things, even avoidance or push through, which may even not work short term, but it, it feels good to do something. So some people may say, oh, it works short term because it feels good in the moment. But then I have kind of a backlash. The point here is things that work short term may not necessarily work long term. So when they come to us, we need to shift that perspective and start working for long term, you know, sustainable solutions. So the vicious cycle inherently has to do with short term consequences. So we need to break that pattern and we need to have the patient understand that pattern. That if they do this, it will work, but it will work short term and you will end up exactly where you are now. So we can have that conversation and ask, so for how long have you been doing this? And they say, okay, four or five years. And what happened? Well, it got worse over time. You know, pain is the same, but I'm not doing anything today that I want to do. So the vicious cycle becomes kind of a downward spiral because it works. So you tend to use these type of strategies, like being careful, which is reasonable. You're careful when there's a threat value, right? The vicious cycle becomes a downward spiral and you will end up with a very narrow life. That your life space, your life bubble is very small, but the pain is the same as it was five years ago. So you've been paying a high price for getting essentially nothing. And when, when the patients start to see this and understand this, well, it is because we have listened, we have understood, we have talked to them, reflected upon what they've actually done. And we've made them see that they've done a lot. And it actually did work short term, but it didn't work long term. And there are negative consequences of those strategies as well. Then we can start to ask the question, so where do we go from here? Should we do more of the same? And most of them say, nah, it doesn't seem to work. Well, it depends what you want to accomplish. If the primary objective is to keep pain as low as possible, maybe it actually does work. And then they say, well, I want more than that. And then I become very curious. When you say you want more than that, what is it that you want? Well, I want to you know, spend time with people. I want to be part of the family. I want to contribute to bringing in money to the family. I want to, I want to work. I want to do things. And then I say, okay, if that's what you want, well, then these strategies don't seem to be very useful over time. 
but that's a different goal. So now you tell me that you have two different goals. You want to keep pain as low as possible, but you also want to do as much as possible. You want to live a vital life. And then I can sort of summarize and say, when I hear you talk about this, it seems to me like you really have two problems. You have your pain, but you also have a shitty life. And to be brutally honest, when I look at the list of things that you've done, I don't really know what to add to that list because you've tried everything in your book and in my book and essentially in all the pain books that are available. And we know the consequences. It will work short term, but it will not remove the pain permanently. So I don't have anything to add, to be brutally honest. I don't even know what I should do to help you to achieve that goal. But if your goal is to live a more vital and meaningful life, I have some ideas. We can try them out. I don't know that they will work, but I've done this for quite a bit. I know that there are things that we can do to make life more interesting and meaningful. But, you know, potentially that will result in strategies that have to do with you facing some of your worst fears. It's going to be scary and potentially pain will increase. But I think we will get to a point where you have a more meaningful life. So you tell me, are you interested in that? And then it's actually up to them. And that's an honest question. I don't know what they will say. And it's actually not my job to answer that question for them. So I've never in my life actually heard someone say, okay, well, now when you put it that way, I think my primary objective and what I will go for is to try to keep pain as low as possible at the expense of living a mean meaningful life. I've never heard that. But what's interesting is that if we get to that point, they own the process. They own their life. It's their call. It's their decision because it's their journey. And then we can start identifying goals that are truly meaningful to them. And then we can start working on things to do in order to manage pain, not the intensity, but reducing how pain interferes with their everyday life, how pain interferes with them moving towards the goals they have of being active, having a meaningful life, being more social, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a different journey than the journey that they were on when they came to me and that the journey that they thought was the only journey. So I kind of expanded their vision a little bit and made them see that there's something else to work towards, but they choose. I talked earlier with Katis Olsson, who kind of lost her dreams when she was badly hurt in her back. I was a cross-country skier and uh, I was uh, competing. And my biggest dream was, of course, to represent the Swedish cross-country skiing team in the Olympics. It was my biggest dream. And at that first accident, it was a parachute accident, I crashed to the ground really hard and the dream crashed as well. Katis Olsson, who kind of lost her dreams when she was badly hurt in her back, but she is actually now helping people in the Olympics by being a mental coach. 
And I talked to Pete Moore, who also has back pain, but is working with the patients through something called the paintoolkit.org. But both of them say that you need professional help somewhere down the line because you can't manage this by yourself. And then I hear that you, Rickard, say that we do this and you talk and listen. Now we have listeners who are somewhere where they they can't really go to a pain clinic or they, they can't travel or they don't have the economic means and so on. Is there anything that they can do themselves to start this journey or is it hopeless because you really need to see a psychologist who knows CBT or ACT? What is your thoughts about this? Well, I, I think some people have gotten stuck in their lives and that's actually something that many patients say explicitly. And sometimes it's more me uh, reflecting on their journey and, and I ask them, it, it seems like you've tried everything in your power to reduce pain and you've ended up in this vicious cycle, downward spiral, and now you're very dissatisfied with what life looks like and you still have your pain and you don't know where to go next. You you feel stuck and they say yes. So sure, in that situation, it might be very useful to have someone to talk to that really listens and understands and has a good level of expertise in dealing with chronic pain. But I would also say that sometimes people are capable of getting unstuck by themselves. And you can get some guidance from self-help books, for example. That's the reason why I wrote this book that you were referring to, um, because I thought there's a group of individuals that actually have that capability where reading this will empowering them to take the steps they need to take in order to explore their ability to live a meaningful life maybe a life that has as much pain but a more meaningful life and then they can start a different journey and my impression is that some people that read the book they did that so it's an indication that some people can do that but that is not to say that your bad patient or bad person if you don't um, if you don't feel able to do it by yourself but i'm just saying that it's worth looking into it and see what can you do yourself with some guidance and we are also now working on building a digital behavioral uh, support program for chronic pain patients that is essentially a condensed program where you have snippets, micro learning formats. So it's like daily sessions that you go through that will provide that kind of guidance in reflecting on your problem and reflecting on the journey and support you in that journey to more meaningful life. You will have contact with a therapist online, but you will be able to access this wherever you are in Sweden. And we're hoping that it will be disseminated and implemented in all 21 regions in Sweden and hopefully later also abroad. So we're going to put it on the 1177 platform because it makes it available to people. Because we think that with a minimal support, they can actually do things on their own. When we talk about chronic pain, there is such a heterogeneous group, like there, there's a great variation. Many, many individuals with chronic pain also have sleep problems, for example. They are depressed, they, they feel anxious, and they have other problems. And 
And some people have a great social support. Some people, they don't have that. I think we should be very careful in generalizing and talking about the group and rather talk about the individual because there is a great variation. So some people, they actually need to come to a pain clinic and see a, a therapist or a psychologist. And some people may not need that in order to make these changes. That's excellent that you can do little effort, but still start with something on your own and not having to wait for that referral for a pain clinic. So actually, you will, of course, reach a lot of people and still having people not uh, needing to participate in hour-long sessions at a fixed hospital, but actually a digital contact uh, when you do something maybe daily. I don't know, but that sounds like a, a really good idea. Yeah, I think so. We, we call this project DALIA, which is a kind of a, a, an acronym for digital interventions to improve the quality of care for individuals with chronic pain and essentially providing access to evidence-based behavioral interventions. We're also going to build a sleep intervention for individuals with chronic pain because we know that many people have those specific problems with sleep. In general, I think that what this digital behavioral program can do is to provide that support. That doesn't mean that they don't need, for example, a very robust and solid pain assessment. We need to know what type of, of pain problem they have. And sometimes medication works. Sometimes you correct something and reduce the pain. Of course, that's very important to keep in mind. We're not talking about every patient that has had pain for more than three months. We're talking about the subgroup of individuals where, you know, medical treatments don't work. And we're talking about those individuals that have tried for a long time and, and they just have this remaining pain, persistent pain that interferes with their everyday life. So essentially, if you have longstanding pain or chronic pain, you've tried things that pain doesn't go away and pain interferes with your everyday life. And this has been going on for quite a while and you feel stuck then this program may be worthwhile looking into. It's not out yet. We're now starting a series of studies. We're working on the prototype. It's going to be tested in a number of different studies, but hopefully, you know, within a year, it will be accessible in some regions. Another thing that I really want to just uh, emphasize is that this program is not about reducing pain. That's not the objective. It's about supporting individuals in their journey to have a more meaningful life, a more active life, live well with pain, the pain that the healthcare has not been able to remove. So if there are things that you want to try to get rid of your pain, well, feel free to do so. But many, many individuals, they are past that point because of the nature of chronic pain. And we know that some pain cannot be removed. We don't know exactly why it can't be removed. We don't know exactly why people have that type of pain. And the best guess I've heard is that evolutionary, there has not been a reason to get rid of pain because it doesn't interfere with reproducibility. Like it's one of those things that have just remained. So we have that problem, we as human beings, but it doesn't mean it's dangerous. Pain itself not, is not necessarily dangerous, but it may stick and it may be felt uh, as a threat and it will potentially be interfering. So the interfering 
aspect of pain is the target or the focus of this intervention. And what we're trying to do is improve resilience, the ability to live a meaningful life with your pain. What I've heard many, many times working with patients is that they go through this program. We're building it in a digital format, but of course we've been doing things face-to-face -face in the more standard format. What I've heard when people have made that journey is that they go through it and then you ask them like, so you still have pain? And they say, of course I have pain. Of course it's, I have the same pain as when I started this program. It's not gone. It's not even lower. Sometimes they say, but it doesn't scare me anymore. I've learned that I don't break apart when I do things and have pain. So it, it's not as threatening to me, but the pain is still there. The intensity is the same, but the threat value is lower. But the main difference is I now do what I want to do in my life. I live a great life. So they feel much better, although they are still in some pain. Could yes, they feel better because they do the things they want to do. And I think that's a different objective than reducing the pain. It's not an objective that is less important. It's just a different objective. And for individuals that are in a position where they cannot have both, they can't reduce the pain and live a meaningful life. Well, then I would say that the goal of living a meaningful life is worth considering. What I really like with this conversation is that you really talk about the meeting between the healthcare personnel and the patient. But when you talk about your new Dahlia project and you say we, uh, we must uh, inform that you're actually an associate professor linked to uh, Karolinska Institutet. I mean, you're very academic, but you didn't actually talk about that at first at least, that really warms my heart because sometimes I have to be brutally honest here, but some of the people into research are not very well connected to the clinical reality. And you seem to have found both worlds in a very good way. I think that the research is, is merely um, a means to improve healthcare. And that in turn is a means to improve the lives of the people that deserve our best efforts. You know, people that are heroes in their own lives, that are struggling with chronic pain and essentially put every single minute and piece of effort into just making it through the day. That feel terrible when they wake up in the morning and the only thought they can have in their head is to make it through the day until the evening. So they deserve our best efforts. And to date, we don't know exactly how we best help these individuals. So we need to learn that and we need to improve our understanding. But we also know that many, many, many individuals, they don't have access to the best treatment options that we can offer. We know when it comes to chronic pain and chronic debilitating pain that interfere with everyday life, Evidence-based cognitive behavior therapy is the best option, but there are very few individuals that actually get access to that intervention. So we need to do research in order to figure out what to do and how to do it, and then how to provide access. So my role as a researcher 
is not different from my role as a clinician. It's just that as a researcher, I work with the field, the whole healthcare system. As a clinician, I work with one patient at a time or a group of patients at a time, but the goal is the same. And I also think that we can do a better job in healthcare being more scientifically oriented. There is no good reason why we're not implementing evidence-based interventions in chronic pain more than we do. And there is no good reason why we're not assessing um, the effects of the interventions in healthcare in a scientific way. Let's talk about something super simple, a medication, a specific medication that we think may work. This is not just the prescribing physician. This can be done within the team. It can be the nurse, the psychologist, or the colleague of, of the physician. So it's a team effort. But how many teams do a solid baseline assessment before they prescribe the medication so that they have something to compare with? And if they don't have something to compare with, how on earth do we think that we can reliably assess the effect of that intervention without running into a number of different problems in interpreting the response when we ask the patient a couple of weeks later. So how do you feel? Did this medication work, you think? We're asking the patient to retrospectively assess how life was before the medication and relate that to how life was after they got the medication, considering the side effects and sort of the combination of, of effects and side effects, it's a complex question that requires more than just retrospective reflecting. We need data. So using data in healthcare will provide more quality, but it will also make it possible to engage the patient in the decision process. Then we can look at the data together. We can sit next to the patient and look at the data and say, what do you think? Do you think that this data indicates that this medication is good for you? And then we can talk about this and reflect, and then we can empower the patient to make decisions about their own lives, because ultimately at the end of the day, it's not our lives, it's their lives. And they should be included in the conversation and they should be given the power to influence the decisions, but then they also need the information. They need to understand what we understand. So I think science is a way of doing healthcare the best way we can. It's nothing else. And I refer to scientist practitioners sometimes. Like we can all be scientist practitioners. We can all use scientific principles to improve the quality of the healthcare and to improve the communication with the patient and together with the patient accomplish more. You see how I just mentioned science and Karolinska Institute and you immediately switched focus and became the associate professor you are. Very impressive. <laughs> but actually, uh, just a, a few episodes ago, I talked to Henrik Grönberg, a clinical oncologist, but uh, a researcher who developed the Stockholm 3 prostate cancer test. And I mean, he was really burning for the patient. They said that his best time of the working day is 
the talk with the patient to understand them and help them. I think the, the combination of being a clinical researcher and being a physician, a doctor is very important. And I've been doing that for over 30 years, combining clinical work with uh, really good research. And um, I th the problem with that is that uh, you have to have two jobs and work, work a lot harder than if you only have one job. But from my perspective, I've always been very interested in the uh, discussion with patients. I mean, I, I'm an oncologist, so I see cancer patients. And I think that's one of the key things that gives me inspiration and strength is really talking to the patients, uh, hearing their stories and trying to give the best care that I can. But still, he saw that the old PSA test for the prostate wasn't specific enough. So he needed to find something else. And now the Stockholm 3 test seems to be a really good test that is now increasing rapidly in Sweden. And you're doing the same, but in a field that um, in society, the edges are not so sharp <laughs> talking about mm. chronic pain or persistent pain. And, and when we talk about this, uh, what is your thoughts about the society dealing with uh, persistent pain or, or politicians? Are we doing enough or do you have some kind of advice for people who are in some kind of decision making? How they would think about this? How can we make Sweden a better place for people with persistent pain? To be honest, it's sad to see that we're not doing more for people living with chronic pain. Um, and I wonder sometimes if we've kind of given up. Chronic pain seems to be so chronic and terrible and we can't do anything about it. So we feel a little bit helpless. And there is this term learned helplessness that is applied sometimes to individuals that are just becoming very passive. They're not even trying to solve the problem anymore because they've failed so many times. So they don't feel encouraged to try another time. We see that in patients. I ask them, what do you want to do with your life? And they say, I don't know. Um, and I ask, what do, you, what do you mean? And when we dig a little bit, it, it turns out that they used to say what they wanted to do in life. And they used to say that this is my goal. And they used to try to get to that goal. And they used to fail again and again and again. And then they stopped trying because it just hurts to fail. And sometimes I wonder if the society has gotten to that point too. We're not even trying to solve the problem anymore. So it's very discouraging sometimes to see how little we are doing when it comes to resource allocation, for example. And the, I think, to be honest, the, the most terrible example of that is pediatric chronic pain. The number of clinics that are available that provide evidence-based interventions for pediatric chronic pain is essentially one or two or maybe three if I am... Pediatric is children, right? Children and adolescents with, mm -hmm. with chronic pain, yes. And the number of young individuals going to school with chronic pain and then not going to school anymore because pain is just terrible and they're getting stuck in, in a way similar to what we talked about before, but they are 14, 15, 16. They haven't even started to think about what jobs they may be able to have. And, and we're not addressing the problem. And the number of research studies in this field is, it's just very few to, to say the least. And it just doesn't match the magnitude of the problem. 
there are individuals that may face lifelong disability that will never ever get into the job market because of the chronic pain problem because we are not addressing it properly as a society so we need a lot of more resources of course but we also need some dedication from the society to start to organize this support in a much better way and today with the introduction of digital solutions the landscape is completely different it's a paradigm shift so the context is dramatically different so now it's up to us within the society to make use of that paradigm shift to start developing interventions uh, developing assessments to promote self-management through digital interventions to reach the masses because there there are individuals out there that have the capability to do things with the support that we actually could provide. And science has already shown us what to do. So the step to take is to start implementing evidence-based interventions for these young individuals with chronic pain that today does not have access to that. And of course, we have the problem also with adults. And there are groups of individuals that are, I mean, I try to be diplomatic now, but neglected. And that's terrible. Chronic pain is a very ambiguous and it's, it's not very defined. If we talk about specific subgroups of individuals, we know that there's, there are lots of subgroups. Uh, some cancer patients that are um, going through the treatment, they survive, uh, but they survive with remaining symptoms, but they're not followed up properly. They're not offered the type of interventions that we have talked about today, but they have chronic pain as a result of cancer and as a result of cancer treatment. And they're trying to manage on their own without any adequate support. We have uh, Valbodinia, for example, which is a, an extremely difficult problem for some women. Do they get the type of interventions that science has shown could be useful? very, very few of them. So there are subgroups of individuals that just does not receive the quality of care that they deserve to have given the struggles and given how much they fight themselves to get through the day. And that actually we should be able to provide them in a country such as Sweden, where we try to bridge the gap between science and healthcare. But in the field of chronic pain, we are failing again and again and again. So is your answer like everyone else in healthcare says, just bring us the money and it will get better? We just need no. more money? We need to do something good with the money. So we need to build infrastructure. We need to build collaborations. But we also need to do a better job at identifying the subgroups of individuals. And we need to be very clear on... Uh, the fact that some individuals need extensive uh, assessment and interventions and some people need less. So we need to do a better job of individualizing the type of, of care that is needed and provided. So it's as much about using the money right as it is to get the money. And ultimately, I think chronic pain needs to be addressed by the society, not just the pain clinics, because if we're relying on the pain clinics, it's not going to work. If we look at the prevalence rates 
Sometimes we say 20%, sometimes we say 30, 40. In, in young individuals, teenagers, there is actually um, prevalence rates ranging from 11 to 38%. Not all of them are disabled by their pain, but let's say five to 10% are. That's quite a few kids. So it's not just about the money, it's about organizing uh, healthcare, collaborating between pain clinics to set up databases so that we can start to generate data and learn more. It's about implementing evidence-based interventions. It's about finding ways to utilize the digital tools to both assess and involve and, and also intervene. So money is one thing, uh, and that's actually a big factor, but it's not the only one. So uh, the 400 billion crowns that the healthcare gets each year, maybe we could reallocate some of that, or at least make better use of that money more than could, pitching. It could, be, but it could also be that that money should be distributed in a similar way, but we should acknowledge the pain problem within different medical conditions as well in cancer or rheumatology or neurology, Parkinson's, for example, they see a lot of pain, but pain is not a big concern sometimes because the main medical problem is in focus. So there are many different things we can do, but we need to up our game in Sweden and we need to start using the information, the knowledge, the expertise that has been provided by research. And we need to do a much better job of collaborating. Mm. Around 20 to 30% of the people listening to this podcast are actually from non-Swedish speaking countries. I go through the country list every month just for fun. And it's so interesting to see that uh, I have listeners from Asia, South America, and I mean, all over. Uh, but do you know if there is any country out there that, that is way ahead in, in this uh, pain uh, business that are actually doing it much better in society? Or is this a global problem with chronic or persistent pain and what society can do about it? I think it is a global problem. Sometimes people in some parts of the world, they have problems that are even more threatening to their existence. And sometimes healthcare uh, is not uh, asking about pain. So we know that from our own healthcare history, we didn't used to talk to kids or parents about young kids' pain. It took many, many, many years um, until we even realized that infants uh, were hurting when we were doing some medical procedures. So it's also about an understanding uh, about the, the, the prevalence and the impact of uh, chronic pain. But I wouldn't say that Sweden is different than any other country. Essentially, all countries that I know of, they struggle with providing evidence-based treatment for chronic pain to the extent needed given the prevalence. So that's why we're also thinking in terms of international collaboration. The Dahlia project is, is extensive. We need expertise from different fields, which has resulted in the inclusion of, of scientific advisors from a range of different countries. We have people from Holland, we have people from US, Belgium, 
um, involved in this study. Ricard, this has been an excellent talk. We've covered a very vast field of pain. But let's say we have a listener now who is in pain, listens to this episode and thinking about what next step should be. Uh, we could, of course, recommend them to read your book. It's in Swedish, Att leva med smärta, Act som livsstrategi by Rickard Wixell. If you haven't noticed, then you're probably deaf. I also wrote a book, Outsmart the Pain. Uh, which we actually hope will be in English somewhere maybe next year, uh, if we're lucky. Uh, apart from reading those two books, uh, what would your suggestion be? Uh, what is the next step for someone who thinks that, oh, this is a lost cause, I'm just in pain, no one can help me, I don't know what to do? You should be demanding your rights as a patient and go to your healthcare contact it could be primary care it could be the pain clinic but you should actually demand a solid assessment of your of your pain and then after that you should demand evidence-based interventions and in many cases that would be something along the lines of cognitive behavior therapy so don't, don't expect a new pill at first at least don't expect that oh someone will find a new medication that no one else has tried could, could mm. I be that blunt and, and say that? Um, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because it depends on what type of pain you have. I mean, you were having some great effects trying a new pill for this headache patient. I said pain assessment instead of what you said, because sometimes we need to have a solid assessment to understand if there is actually a pharmacological intervention that can be used, that hasn't been used, that has a good likelihood of having an effect without any severe side effects. Well, well just... to be honest, I try to lure you into a trap because I'm the doctor. I'm the one who prescribes the pills and you're the psychologist. And I asked if we should skip the medicine and you didn't uh, buy that one. You said you need a good assessment. The medication is one part of that. So yeah. listeners, I couldn't really trick him to say something wrong here. That was uh, <laughs> quite well, good. Let me, let me say this then. Uh, now, when you uh, put it that way, when we prescribe medication, we can do it in different ways. And how we do it actually has a great impact. Let's say you say to your patient, like your pain is terrible. You shouldn't have to suffer this much from pain. And we need to remove that pain in order for you to feel better. And then we can start working on making changes in your life and you can start do more. So let's first focus on reducing your pain. And now I'm going to prescribe this medication and you will take this and we trust that it will have an impact on your pain. The same pill can be provided in a different context. I can, as a prescribing uh, physician, say to the patient, right, so you've struggled with pain for quite some time. Uh, it's unclear what causes the pain, but it's very clear that it interferes with your everyday life and it prevents you from doing the things that you want to do. This pain is not dangerous in itself, but not doing things that are important in life may have negative implications for your quality of life and your well-being and, and ultimately your health. So I think what you need to do is to work towards getting back in the saddle and, and start working on living your life in a meaningful and active way. And I will support you in that. There may be medications that could make that journey easier for you, that can make it easier for you to do the things that are important for you. 
I don't know if this medication is going to work, but I think we can try. So it could be that taking this medication will make it a little bit easier for you to be physically active, for example. But that's what you need to do. You need to be more physically active in order to have a better life. So the same pill is provided in a different way. The receiver of the message will take that same pill and have a different goal, depending upon what we say to the patient. It's like the funny story when the doctor says, here you have a pill, and if that doesn't work, I have another one. And the patient says, could I have the other one at first? <laughs> this has been so extremely interesting. And uh, of course, uh, we can't get all the answers, but maybe it kind of tickled a part of the brain for the listener to, to actually go ahead and do something more about their pain. If you are in pain, the one who's listening, maybe you're a relative who thinks that maybe your person that you care about should do something. Maybe you're a healthcare professional and you start thinking that maybe you already made up your mind how the patient is behaving before you even started listening. So there could be very different reasons for learning something from this episode. But did I miss anything? Anything that you should have said or that I should have asked before we conclude this? I think it's important to just uh, underscore that uh, as someone that is suffering from pain or someone that lives with someone suffering from pain, <sighs> As hard as it is to hear, I think healthcare can only do as much. At the end of the day, you're left with your life and you need to take responsibility for that and make the decisions that are good for you. And sometimes that implies doing things that are scary and hard and no one else can decide if it's worth it, if it's meaningful. But I would like to encourage anyone struggling with chronic pain to not stop dreaming about what life can be like and then take that one step further and start to think about small steps to take in that direction and ask yourself the question okay this may actually increase my pain but what if it's worth it and start exploring your capacity as a human being to live a vital and meaningful life also in the presence of the pain that healthcare cannot take away mm. excellent final words so take care Ricard, and do your good work out there and maybe we'll talk to you later okay thank you Gaston. thank you bye bye